The Guardian. Hello and welcome back to the September Back to Shul edition of Sounds Jewish. In this month's podcast, get ready for Golda Meir, the sequel. Israel could be about to have a woman prime minister. We speak to Jewish royalty. Yes, an interview with the ultimate Jewish-American princess, Joan Rivers. Oh, and she doesn't much like John McCain's running mate, Sarah Palin. I think the woman that he has picked is a piece of garbage. She is a fundamentalist. Can we talk, of course, Joan Rivers saying what's on her mind. Is the Holocaust a suitable subject for a film aimed at children? Or have Disney bitten off more than they and we can chew? And with Jewish New Year around the corner, the stress of knowing a vodka ver in synagogue. It's just a bit intimidating. There's a lot of pressure. It's a bit, you know, like a cattle market, fish market, you know. You walk in, people turn around, people look, you know, whispering, looking at each other. Salam, shalom. A fashion maven from where else? Temple Fortune there. But joining me here in the studio are writer and filmmaker Naomi Grin and fashion designer Sarah Berman. Welcome. What a female-led panel we have today and how joyous that is. Is synagogue like a bit like a cattle market, Sarah? More of a cattle market than a fish market. I'm a bit worried about the fish market comment. I think someone maybe, needs to have a bath. Maybe it's fish balls. <laughs> they're kind of making their way over. Naomi, do you like dressing up to go to synagogue? Um, I'm a bit confused about whether one should dress up to go to synagogue, really, because I think what it's really about is um, what you've got going on in your head. Um, so, But in fact, I got very excited this winter. I was in Australia and I saw this white shift dress in a shop and I thought, that's my next Yom Kippur dress. <laughs> so um, I'm looking forward to wearing that, this Yom Kippur, for the first time. Uh, more later, as I said, because first we must turn to Jerusalem, where later this month the ruling Kadima party will choose its next leader. It follows the resignation of Prime Minister Ehud Olmert in July after a series of corruption scandals. Foreign Minister Tsipi Livni and Transport Minister Shaul Mofaz are the frontrunners, and it's neck and neck. Whoever wins will have the chance to form a new government and take over as Prime Minister, so the stakes couldn't be higher. I spoke earlier to the former editor of Haaretz.com, Peter Hirschberg, and started by asking him to tell me a little bit more about these two main candidates. Peter, let's start with Sippy Livni. What's she like? Well, she's, uh, as you pointed out, the uh, current foreign minister, and she's really been trying to portray herself uh, in two ways. One is uh, a pragmatist when it comes to uh, the negotiations with the Palestinians. She supports a two-state solution, and she, as foreign minister, has been responsible for negotiations with the Palestinians. But I would say, more importantly, she has tried to portray herself uh, in, in a way as an antidote to Mr. Olmert, uh, who has been embroiled in corruption scandals almost since his term started. And she has become a champion of, of clean politics and has tried, in a way, I suppose, to portray herself as, as Mrs. Clean. And this has made her actually particularly popular with the general public in Israel. But she was also uh, a sort of war hero, wasn't she? She was a, a Mossad secret agent, wasn't she? Who wasn't entirely clean, in her, presumably, in her doings uh, when she was working as a spy. Yeah, although I think that her Mossad background has uh, been played up a little. She obviously has been very tight-lipped about it. But what we do know about her is uh, her family background. She actually comes from uh, a, a very hawkish or politically hardline background in that her parents were members of the uh, pre-state Irgun Jewish underground that fought the uh, British during uh, mandatory times in, in Palestine. And 
she has undergone something of an ideological journey over the last five or six years in which she has moved away from those more hardline positions. If you look at opinion polls, uh, you, you, w- what, has, what has emerged over the last month or so is that a Kadima party under her leadership is running neck and neck with the Likud under Benjamin Netanyahu. Now, Mr. Netanyahu has held a lead in the polls for a long time. Uh, so that's definitely a, an interesting development. So what we've got we've got an impression of, of what uh, Ms. Livni is uh, like. What's uh, Shaul Moffaz like as a as a as a as a politician and as a character that's coming across? Well, if she's trying to portray herself as Ms. Clean, I think he's trying to portray himself as Mr. Security. <laughs> uh, he has been much more hardline on issues relating to the peace process with the Palestinians. Uh, saying that uh, it will need a long time to build trust with the Palestinians before Israel can make any major concessions. And he's certainly been far more combative on the issue of Iran. Um, Earlier this year, in in early June, he came out and said that if Iran continued with its nuclear program, then an Israeli attack on Iran's nuclear facilities would be unavoidable, to quote him. And this is his uh, experience, presumably because he was formerly a defence minister. That's right. Not only formerly defence minister, he was also formerly a, a chief of staff. Is there an appetite for change in Israeli po- politics? And are they ready for uh, another woman, the first since Golda Meir, to, to be the leader? The interesting thing here in Israel is that, unlike uh, in the US, gender politics is far less pronounced. You know, there was a debate in the US about the uh, significance of Hillary Clinton's candidacy and what it meant for women in America. Yeah. Now, there's no debate raging in Israel about what... Tippi Livni's candidacy means for Israeli society or what it means for, uh, for Israeli women. That's certainly not taking place. That doesn't mean, of course, that there isn't an undercurrent of chauvinism in this, uh, in this, uh, in this race. You know, Eld Olmer, who certainly is not a great fan of Tippi Livni, often refers to her as that woman. Peter Hirschberg talking to me earlier from Tel Aviv. And if you are captivated by the other big election this year, the presidential contest in America, don't miss out on an event organised by the Jewish Community Centre for London with Guardian columnist Jonathan Friedland and the Daily Mail's Melanie Phillips. They'll be debating who's better for the Jews in the Middle East and beyond, Barack Obama or John McCain. It's all happening at the Hampstead Town Hall in October. Check out our Sounds Jewish webpage for more details. The Queen of Comedy herself, Joan Rivers, is here in London this month performing her autobiographical stage show, A Work in Progress by A Life in Progress, at the Leicester Square Theatre. Our reporter Tanya Gold joined Joan backstage to discuss her comedy heroes and why Republican vice presidential nominee Sarah Palin won't be getting her vote in the US elections. What is Joan Rivers' play and life all about? The play is... uh based on an incident that happened to me for the Academy Awards in 2004. And it took place in a dressing room. And when it happened, I said, this would make a very good play. As it happened, it was so bad, and the person that did it was so evil. I thought, that's a good piece of theatricality here. And so it started out with that. And then I break, and I talk to the audience. And it's a lot about my life, and it's a lot about what happens to the people around me in the play, in their lives. And um, it's funny and it's sad. <laughs> Boo-hoo-hoo. And I think it's a great evening. I think it's really a good, good evening in the theatre. Could you describe uh, in more detail what happened backstage at the Academy Awards? No, no, because why give away a plot? Yeah, go see Hamlet. Um, Hamlet kills his stepfather and blah, blah, blah. No, you don't want to know that. I hate it. Two things I hate when people... 
tell a plot or when critics quote jokes? Why do you say, I laughed my head off when she said blah, 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 blah. Well, then nobody else will laugh their head off. I look at these things and I go, no, you idiot. Just say I laughed my head off. Don't tell the joke. So many of the most famous American comedians, including yourself, are Jewish. Why do you think that is? It isn't. Uh, it isn't. Uh, trust me, Bob Hope wasn't Jewish. Johnny Carson wasn't Jewish. David Letterman isn't Jewish. Jay Leno isn't Jewish. Bill Cosby isn't Jewish. Phyllis Diller isn't Jewish. It's just people always think that. And you always say, no, 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 no. I think it's infused with ethnicity. Because, you know, and it really is true. It's all about minorities and underdogs and making jokes. So whether it's, we say Jewish because we're Jewish and we go, oh, that's hilarious. But every mother, whether you're Jewish or you're Italian, you want your son to do better. You want your daughter to marry rich. Uh, so it's just about the underdog pushing for their children, their family to get better. And that's what the American humor really is. It's all this truly melting pot that came into being. We're very excited about the presidential election. Have you decided who you're going to vote for and why? I think they're all garbage. I think they're all scum. Uh, McCain, McLean is, um, I, even though I'm older than he is, I, I would never think if I ran for president, I'd say, of course I'm fine. I worry about him at his age. I think there's no passion behind him. I think the woman that he has picked is a piece of garbage. She is a fundamentalist. She is a, uh, she believes in uh, creationism, which is very scary. She does not believe in birth control. She does not believe in abortion. There's women's rights. I don't know what she's talking about. She might as well get into a burqa. It's, it's a very scary thing. Anyone that believes Noah had an ark and got everybody on that damn ark, including elephants and penguins, I think we're in major trouble. So I think that takes care of that side. Now let's go to the other side. I think Obama has absolutely uh, no right to be in the uh, presidential office at this point. He has no, absolutely no experience. I heard that your plastic surgeon throws you out of his office sometimes. Are you going to have any more done? Uh, my plastic surgeon is one of my very good friends. No, what he does do, and I love him, I'll go and I'll say, what do you think, Steve? And he'll say, nothing. Or sometimes we'll be at a dinner party and he'll say to me, you really need that. So um, I totally listen to him. He'll say, come back in two years. And I come back in two years. Uh, I'll do more when I look on camera and I don't look right. Absolutely. Nobody wants to look at someone that is not attractive in our business. That is why, if you look at all the newscasters, the men are older because they're still attractive. And the women, look at CNN, look at BBC. They're all in their 20s, and they're going, well, 27 people killed today. <sighs> and uh, everybody wants to look at a pretty face. Sounds Jewish reporter Tanya Gold in conversation with Joan Rivers there. Sarah, Naomi, uh, big Joan Rivers fan, Sarah? Yeah, I think she's hilarious. I think she's brilliant. 
just glad she's not my mother. <laughs> I mean, she does all that standing on the red carpet in the US now. She's had a kind of revival of her career, kind of mocking celebrity fashions and, and asking them what they're wearing. I'm like, God, what is that? Uh, is that something that you, you, you kind of like about the, the, the fashion industry, the, the way it can kind of in, in, from the inside bitch I itself? I love the bitchiness, the nastiness, the dirty underbelly of fashion. Of course not. It's my nightmare. I'm a nerd from Hampstead. I'm terrified. She scares the living daylights out of me. Well, you do feel like you... You know Joan Rivers, don't you? You feel like she's the character who comes up to you at the kiddush in the synagogue and tells you what she thinks about what you're wearing um, and and tries to give you offer you some suggestions for improving your life. Yeah, I mean, is there something Jewish? I think about being up front, isn't there? That the actual sort of coming out with what's what's on your mind is a particularly. Jewish straight, perhaps not of our generation, but certainly of that older generation. A fearlessness. Uh, what's the worst that can happen? They don't like you. Yeah, I mean, you've been through immigrant dramas. You've struggled to, to kind of uh, you know, make yourself, make something of yourself. You struggled through vaudeville, through the Borscht Belt, all those terrible audiences that she must have endured in the 50s and 60s, kind of dribbling herring out of their mouths. It makes you a stronger performer, I would think, Zara. Um, well, I, I'm always better when I don't have herring uh, coming out of my mouth. I feel I, I present myself better. Also, it ruins my outfit, and that for me is always a primary concern. You don't want to dribble when you're wearing your your your, your, your season's outfit. That's a problem. I find you know with with the run up to to the the fashion week of the Jewish world, which is Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah, you kind of don't want to be dribbling. <laughs> A new film set around the Holocaust is released next week. The Boy in the Striped Pyjamas concerns young Bruno, who's the eight-year-old son of a concentration camp commandant. Playing near his house, Bruno sees what he first thinks is a farm where they all wear striped pyjamas and where he starts up a friendship across the electric fence with an eight-year-old child prisoner, Shmuel. I'm joined in the studio, of course, by Naomi Grin, whose father was the beloved rabbi and well-known broadcaster Hugo Grin, himself a survivor of Auschwitz. We'll be finding out what Naomi thought of the film after we spoke to the film's producer, David Heyman, who joins me on the line now. Welcome to Sounds Jewish. Thanks so much for joining us, uh, David. I know your film's about to come out. When you're producing a film like that, you have to be presumably very, very careful about who you offend, how not to offend, how to sentimentalise, how to trivialise, especially when you're dealing with a subject as almost unfilmable and unknowable and, um, and unfathomable as the Holocaust. What were the difficulties that presented to you? Well, most certainly, um, you know, there are, the, the, making a film about the Holocaust is probably one of the greatest challenges one could ever take on because um, in, there are some people who feel that just uh, that if you haven't experienced the Holocaust in, in, yourself, um, that you probably shouldn't put it to film. It's important to take that on. I think it's very important to keep the Holocaust alive in people's mind. Um, and hopefully that this is... Um, for some people, it may be their first experience of, 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 of um, a film about the Holocaust and will hopeful, hopefully lead them to explore um, you know, other books and other films. But, you know, most certainly um, dealing with something, you know, creating a gas chamber, for example, or the costumes um, um, were all huge challenges. But most important, I think, and one of the most important things, I think, in the whole film was maintaining a truthfulness in the performances and the truthfulness in, 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 in you know, about the film. Um, who, do you, who do you think might, might see this movie? Do you have an audience in mind? Because it struck me that there is a bit of horror at the end, which, which, which was, will strike anyone as, uh, as quite scary. Um, uh, and there's also a charm to it. I, I, I do wonder, you know, if you expected children to see this in future generations, will they be seeing this film in schools? Uh, where you had a, a sort of a, a, an eye for the audience here? 
Well, you know, obviously it's not it's not going to be a broad audience like Harry Potter. I think that that you know I think that um, this has an opportunity to appeal across a broad cross section of an audience. Um, I think that that you know we're hoping that that children who've read the book um, uh, will, will will go and will encourage their parents to take take them with them. The parents who feel who who might feel that this is a great introduction for their children to something like the Holocaust. And because the book is so popular, I think it, it will find its way into educational programmes and, and, and beyond. David Heyman, producer of The Boy in Striped Pyjamas there. Naomi Green, you and I saw the, the film together the, the other night. You left in tears, uh, I have to say. And I don't I mean that to, to reveal that, to, to sort of embarrass you or not, but it uh, it seemed the right response to this film. Well, the older the, the older I get, the more sensitive I get to this story. And in fact, sometimes I think the phrase never again for me means... Let no more exposure to material about the Holocaust because it's so poisonous. Um, and when you say poisonous, what do you mean? Um, you, you, here we are, Jews living 60 years after the end of Second World War, and we need to be celebrating the fact that we're alive, you know, and, um, and it's very appropriate that once a year at Yom HaShoah one should reflect on that time and remember the people who have no one to remember them but um, there are Jews who who've made the Shoah really their kind of Jewish identity and I certainly wouldn't like to do that that would make mockery of my own father's survival from the camps yeah and I really relate to the film because my uncle Gabby was 10 years old when he was gassed in the chambers in 1944 and um, because I, I have spent a lot of time working through my father's story I made a film with him about the town that he came from and after his his death I finished his memoirs which went more into his experiences in the camps um, and um, I have, have felt that um, I have to put that aside you know close the covers on it and so move watch, on. So watching a film like this which is distributed by Disney it has a, a sort of glossy feel to the film do you feel it, it trivialises the, the true horror of the Holocaust? I've got mixed feelings about the film one, it's a very well-made film. You know, the producer of Harry Potter plus BBC Films, they pulled out all the stops and it's really first-rate and it's very engaging. And, um, and Mark Herman, the director, did uh, Brassed Off as well, so it's got that kind of sort of underdog feel as well to it. Absolutely. On the other hand, there is an extent to which you can say that it's a film about children's need for friendship set against a horrific background of the Holocaust and the end scene is fantastically shocking. I don't know if, I don't think we should spoil it for people who are going to go and see it, but it's fantastically shocking and the only response to it is to be horrified. Um, I, I don't really know who should see this film. It's got a 12... Um, uh, 12A. 12A certificate. Um, and I'm not sure that children older than that are really going to relate to it because its protagonist is an eight-year-old. I certainly wouldn't want any of my nephews to see it. Um, they're really? all How old are they? Um, ten, ten, nine, seven, six. I, I, find, I think it's interesting as well that the BBC have got involved in this. I know they've also got coming out soon uh, the Anne Frank film. Uh, so the BBC, who for some time have been on a Holocaust-free zone, have got behind two quite um, substantial Holocaust projects, which shows some respect to the story. Um, for, for me, I'd say 
if you, if you were going to recommend what film should go out to people to give them proper background, I'd want it to be something that was more authentic. I thought that Counterfeiters, the Austrian film that was around last year, I thought that that would be a great film for uh, young people to see it's in German, which makes it very authentic. It really gave what I imagine would be a very authentic sense to what a, a concentration camp was like without being too horrific. Well, that's available on DVD, but in your cinemas now is The Boy with the Striped Pyjamas, and I would recommend going to see it. <laughs> The leaves are turning brown. It's that time of year again. If it's September, the high holy days must be looming. The big Jewish festivals of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, the New Year, swiftly followed on by the Day of Atonement. Now, of course, it's all terribly sombre and spiritual and important, but also, let's face it, it's our chance to dress up. What's the new look for this holy day season? And what should you not be seen dead in as you head to the synagogue? Here are some tips from the boutique couturiers of North London's Temple Fortune. Hi, my name's Debbie and I work for Speedway in Temple Fortune. We're a ladies' fashion store. All our customers are getting very excited about their new outfits that they're going to wear for synagogue. Everybody likes to wear something new for sure and they also like to look extremely fashionable because there is a sense of everyone looking at each other's outfits and commenting on what each other are wearing and there is a certain amount of pressure to look good definitely. A lot of the customers particularly in this area um, are very religious they have to be covered basically um, their shoulders have to be covered and they tend to wear the length of the dress is either just below the knee or slightly longer but um, at the same time they're also very trendy and want to wear all the fashions but in a way that they can wear them without wearing anything revealing in any way. My name is Lorraine Gregory and I work in a shop at Jessie Marin Temple Fortune. My name is Natalie Muchter, I work in Jessie Mara and Temple Fortune. We're known for doing more quirky outfits, so you wouldn't come in here for your suit and jacket. We're more for like your unusual bits with like, you know, like a nice suede or leather piece over the top, so the dresses will be quite unusual from here. Definitely women do check each other out in shawl in synagogue. It's just a bit intimidating, there's a lot of pressure, it's a bit, you know, like a cattle market, fish market, you know. You walk in, people turn around, people look, you know, whispering, looking at each other, smiling, frowning, this, that. Yeah. I think I've got my short outfit. What is it? I'm not telling you. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be a surprise on the day. For the day. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I've got Sarah Berman and Naomi Green uh, in the studio with me. Sarah, let's start with you because you are, of course, a fashion designer. Do you ever design clothes with Rosh Hashanah or with a Jewish audience in mind? I can't say particularly for a Jewish audience. Um, but I do think, going back to Joan Rivers and what she said, there's an element of truth in the idea that uh, we want to better ourselves as a, as a sort of... Um, sort of a Jewish trait in general. And we use clothes as a, as a way to enhance our assets, either physically or actually financially, because people do like to show off that they've got a bit of a new thing going on. And if someone else recognises it's a, a particular designer, you know, it, it does show that they've either got a few bob to spend or, you know, they've got nice legs and whatever it is. And um, I think it's sort of in the name of evolutionary enhancement, one does need or is morally obliged in the name of our religion to buy a, a sort of a new outfit for synagogue. I think so. Is, is Rosh Hashanah a, a particular time? I remember kind of of being on holiday in, in, in August and, and everyone was rushing to kind of buy a Yontif outfit, whether we 
were in Spain on holiday, they'd be going to a boutique there to try and look at for some Yontif boots. Uh, is is there a, a have you ever kind of rushed out and bought a, bought a Yontif outfit that you're really proud of a look that you've busted in shawl and you're thinking I nailed it that year? I nailed my look. I have to admit, there is that moment where you want to buy the outfit. You know you shouldn't spend the money. You know it's a little bit, it's a little bit out your leave. You think, you know what, it's, it's, I need to do it. I've got Yom Kippur coming up. I've got Rosh Hashanah. I need something to wear. I can't wear what I wore last week because no nice Jewish boy is going to marry me if I do that. So I'm going to have to get something new. <laughs> Let my whole side down if I'm not there in a new gig. And I mean, is it is it important to wear? I mean, there's something there needs to be something sober about the outfit, I suppose, because you're going to synagogue. It's not the same sort of thing you'd wear if you were going out on a Saturday night, for example. Bikini and a rara skirt's just not going to work. It's not. The no. rabbi would have a fit. It's not going to do the look. So do I wear a hat? Do I not? Wear? Well, I'm married now. Now I've got the hat trauma, and I always wanted to wear a hat before when I was younger there was this whole thing of can I wear it if I'm not married am I going to send out the wrong messages no one's going to want me they'll think I'm taken I can't wear a hat and now I'm married if I don't wear a hat am I being disrespectful or is it an excuse to buy a hat maybe I need several hats if I don't know what outfit I'm going to wear how do I know what hat I'm going to wear uh, and maybe let's go back to, uh, to to your youth not that long ago of course uh, but did you ever kind of think ah oh, because well, you were the rabbi's daughter uh, as well and all the attendant jokes that that had did you ever have a pressure because the rabbi's daughter should be seen to be adhering to kind of strict fashion modes but then she also had to look good well also I had a grandfather who was a dress designer and there was always a dispute about whether or not uh, we were wearing frumpy clothes and sometimes he would take us off to meet some of his pals around the area now known as NoHo to score our Rosh Hashanah That was the garment district, wasn't it? (laughs) Uh, Around there, Maple Street and below. Uh, What about the guys? Because, I mean, the the women always proudly uh, display themselves and we look up or across, depending on which movement of Judaism we we belong to, Reform or Orthodox, uh, and we look at the women and we think, wonderful, they look great. But what about the blokes? Do they ever look look good in their suits? I think they wear the keeper to hide the ball patch because they know we're looking down on them and that's going to seriously ruin their chances. So, again, it's this evolutionary effect coming into play with the clothes. So they've got the... They position the keeper big smaller depending on you know on who if they're single if they're married if they're trying to attract from above <laughs> they keep it covered right well i feel completely outfitted uh, for the high holy days uh, sarah berman naomi grin thank you so much for your input uh, this week fascinating stories and fashion tips uh, abounding here on this episode of sounds jewish thanks to our sponsors as well the jewish community center for london from me jason solomon and my producer sarah peters happy new year and goodbye For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.